Well, why don't you turn to James chapter 3 in your Bibles. We'll finish this chapter this morning learning more about the nature of true wisdom. James chapter 3, like Oliver is mentioning, I hope and trust that you love wisdom. I think no one wants to be a fool. You want to be wise, but by what standard? Do you know anyone who's a real know-it-all? I mean, in a good way. They're not a smart aleck. They're just actually smart. They seem to know everything, like that guy, Ken Jennings, who won 74 straight games of Jeopardy all in a row. Maybe you've got a friend like that who just seems to be filled with tons of knowledge and information and sometimes useless data, but still. Or maybe you know someone who's not just knowledgeable, but they're skilled. They can do anything or fix anything, maybe like a dad or a grandfather. Anything breaks, they can take it apart, fix it, put it back together. I'm amazed by people like that who seem to be filled with such a vast array of knowledge. But all that knowledge does not necessarily mean they live a good life. There are many learned people who at the same time lead wicked and depraved lives out of harmony with God. And others live very selfish, self-centered lives out of harmony with others. And for all their knowledge and learning... One thing they seem to not be able to figure out is people, how to live with others. Nikola Tesla, for example, is a brilliant scientist, an inventor. He's the one who invented AC power, alternating current. You know, when you plug in, you get AC power. That was him. Changed the world, the brilliant uh, inventor. And he patented and licensed his inventions, became extremely rich as well. But for all his success and knowledge, He was a total failure in relationships. He ate dinner every night, 8 p.m., alone, always alone, never married, never engaged in personal relationships. He could only relate to his work. And so finally, he died alone in his hotel room in the New New Yorker Hotel and was found a couple days later by the maid. And we would definitely say Tesla was an intelligent man and a brilliant inventor, but We would not say he was a wise man, at least not according to Scripture. And it's in this way that the Apostle James writes to challenge our standard of wisdom, what it means to be wise. And true wisdom is not measured by what you know, but by how you live, the type of life you lead before God and others. And why bring this up? Why does James, the half-brother of the Lord, bring this up here at the end of chapter 3 and tell us about the nature of true wisdom? Well, see, the, the problem is there's another type of wisdom, the wisdom of the world and the world's philosophy. It has nothing to do about living rightly before God and others. Instead, it's all about self, serving self, seeking self, bettering self, even at the expense of God and others. And the world's wisdom says life is all about you. And the most important thing is for you to get, to get ahead, for you to be happy. And if that means you've got to violate some precepts of God or step on others to get ahead, well, so be it. This life is about you. This is clearly an unbiblical worldview. This is wisdom from below, James would say, even of the devil, he said in this passage. And James writes, to these early Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they were living, you know, smack in the middle of the world. And the world's ways and the world's wisdom was, was all around them. It's in the air they breathed. The problem, though, it was starting to, to get in the church, though. It was coming in through the cracks, this way of thinking where life is just about you. It's about self. The church is called to be different, set apart, separate. Not just living for self, but for God and thereby to serve others. But some of these Christians, they were beginning to be carried away by the ways of the world, the wisdom of the world, and just the total self-centered thinking of the world. And it was bearing its fruit. That type of philosophy where, you know, this life is, is for you. It was bearing its rotten fruit of division, discord, and disorder. As James said, only evil results when people are just living for themselves and when the world's wisdom reigns. And so naturally, when that type of thinking gets in the church, it's going to be bad. We're going to have problems. 
And so James writes here at the end of chapter 3 to call out this wisdom from below, shine a spotlight on it, that we might see it for what it is and avoid it. And by way of recap, he says in verse 13 from, from last time, James establishes the standard of true wisdom. Look at James 3.13 again. He asks, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. He's saying here, what's the measure of real wisdom? It's not how much you know. It's how you live. Let's see what kind of right and righteous life you live. Let's see you walk in God's ways. That's the wise person. Now, of course, the world fails that test. And so in verses 14 through 16, he goes on to expose the wisdom that comes from below. The wisdom of the world. What's it all about? Look at verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. We say this passage last week, and there we found the character of the world's wisdom, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And of course, I mean, if you have a philosophy, if you have a worldview that's all about self, well, of course you're going to find bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The world says, look out for number one at all costs. And hey, if needed, you can step on others to get ahead. So of course, that's what we're going to get from the world. We also found the source of the world's wisdom earthly, natural, demonic, he says. And what do you know? The three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, just so happen to be the the three sources of the world's wisdom. And when they reign, we found, thirdly, the fruit of the world's wisdom. And James says, disorder. And every evil thing, he just kind of throws it all in there. You get disorder. You get division, strife. And then on top of that, a whole host of other evils. That's what comes from the wisdom of the world. As we learn, this world is thoroughly lost and deceived. It exists in complete rebellion against God and his ways, just like we did before we came to Christ. And in such a state of rebellion, you don't find truth. You certainly don't find wisdom for right living. Like what's life about? How should we live this one life we have? We don't get that from this world. Those in the world, they get God wrong. They get Christ wrong. They get sin wrong. They get salvation wrong. Why then would you go to them for answers? Like, what's life about? How should I live this life? Why would you submit to their thinking? Why would you buy into their worldview or philosophy? I mean, can you see it for what it is, what it's about, what it produces? I hope you can, and and to that effect, we've been warned away from the so-called wisdom of the world, wisdom from below. But we're not quite finished, for thankfully there is an alternative. There's another wisdom or worldview that is from above, and it's this divine wisdom that we need if we're going to live rightly before God and others. We need to guard our minds, put off the thinking of the world. But that's not all. We must also then replace and, and fill our minds now with the thinking of God, the wisdom from above. And it's that wisdom, God's way of thinking. That's what's going to lead to a life of peace and blessing and unity. So we need in the church a life of harmony with God and others. The church needs to be governed by this wisdom And so James finishes now by instructing us on this wisdom from above. We're back today. We're just batting clean up. We're just finishing these last two verses here in James 3. But we want to now discover and live out this wisdom. Not from below, but now wisdom from above. So in verses 17 and 18, they're short. We'll read as we go. 
You know, last time we found three essential qualities of wisdom from below. We're just going to mirror that now with three essential qualities of wisdom from above. Three essential qualities of wisdom from above. We'll even steal the same outline. So we'll begin with its character. Number one now, shifting our sight to wisdom from above. First, its character. And this is verse 17. Look there. He says in contrast, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Here in one verse, James paints a quick character sketch of wisdom from above. He uses seven brush strokes, these seven characteristics of godly wisdom. I'm going to spend a little time just looking at these that we might just understand, see what, what is God's way of thinking all about? What characterizes it? Well, first, he says purity. Wisdom from above is first pure. And in this sentence, this first characteristic stands apart and stands above the others, kind of governs the others. So spend a little extra time on this one. Purity. Pure means clean, undefiled, free from everything that stains the thinking of the world. This world hagnos in the Greek is from the same root as the word holy, hagias. And as such, God's wisdom is set apart. It's pure from fault. It reflects his own holy and pure character. And so what do you know? God's wisdom, it's going to lead you to a holy and pure life. I hope that doesn't surprise you, but God wants his people to lead holy and pure lives. And his wisdom is going to point you in that direction. I want to read you a verse again we read last week, but it's so relevant and worth even more reflection. You can just listen to 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, he says to the church, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You've got Paul here picturing himself as the spiritual father of the Corinthian church, and in many ways he was, and he's jealous for them, like a father would be of, of his daughter. He wants, he desperately wants for them to honor God and just be faithful, be faithful to the one to whom they've been betrothed, to Christ. And that's a key concept in scripture, our betrothal to Christ. And today we use the term engagement to speak of a couple that has declared their intentions to be married. In the ancient Near East, the term was betrothal, a little more formal, carried a little more weight than engagement today. The betrothed couple was in many ways considered legally married. They were in many ways united, not physically, but in many ways united Their union or marriage, though, was not completed, of course, until their wedding day and the consummation. And Scripture uses this same concept to speak of our union with Christ. Jesus came to secure for himself a bride, the church, and in salvation, being redeemed right now, you have been betrothed to Christ, united. You're united to him. For all legal purposes, you are united to Christ. But at the same time, you know, we still wait for the consummation, the marriage supper of the lamb, the time when Christ returns and and the wedding day comes, so to speak, and we are now with him forever, our our head. That's, That's the wedding day that's to come. Until that day, we wait patiently for him in this betrothal period, which could go on for quite some time back then. And at the same time, we also need to strive for purity, right? We're we're betrothed. That's it. We're done. We're off the market. And we have one spouse, Christ. And now it's our aim, our purpose to be pure for him, waiting for him, devoted to him alone. I mean, how'd you feel if your fiance told you that during their your engagement period, he or she was unfaithful many times? And that would be crushing and devastating. You want that. No one wants that. Christ doesn't want that. He wants his bride, the church, wearing white on their wedding day. 
He wants a pure bride. In reality, though, we, we know we're all not. I mean, we're all spiritual adulterers, all of us. We've all gone astray into sin. We're not perfect. What's amazing, though, is that Christ redeems us anyway. He's coming for us anyway. He died to redeem this bride with all of her flaws and sin and rebellion. That's why he came. And that's, that's the glory of the gospel, that he's going to still take this bride. But for those who are part now, who, who have been so redeemed, well, now you should know that it's, it's our purpose and, and also passion to pursue purity. It's to strive to stay pure for his sake, for the sake of the one who redeemed us. And so this is what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians, that the church, the Corinthians, they've been betrothed to Christ. He just wants them to stay pure in their devotion to Christ. This is behavior. This is thinking. This wants them to stay pure in devotion. But it doesn't always happen. There's some challenges. He says in verse 3, I'll just read it for you again. He says after that, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Remember that verse now? I mean, you see Satan's work of deception continues and he's trying to see our minds led astray. From what? From just the simplicity and the, the purity of devotion to Christ. He wants to see us cheat with the world, to be led astray. And he's crafty with his deceptions and doubts and denials of the truth. And Satan is all about getting people to buy into his wisdom, his worldview, his way of thinking. Because once you do, well, you, you'll act like him as well. He just needs to capture your mind and it's a done deal. He's very happy to see the minds of Christians filled with secularism or egotism or hedonism or any other ism, as long as it's not just devotion to Christ. But you've got no business being caught with these other worldviews in your mind. You're betrothed to Christ alone. And so you must remain pure and devoted to him. Like 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, it says, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so look, God wants his children to be pure. He wants a pure bride for Christ. And as we've seen, this includes your mind, your thinking, the wisdom you subscribe to. You don't have any business filling your mind with the, the wisdom of the world. That would be like cheating on Christ, so to speak. Instead, you need to fill your minds with God's wisdom. And so back to James, the point James is making now is that this wisdom, it, it's going to be about purity. It's going to advocate total purity. It's, it's all about the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. That, that's that, that overview. That, this is a a constitutional character mark of wisdom from above. It's pure. And it advocates nothing but pure devotion to Christ. And so like any teaching or philosophy or worldview that, that says otherwise, that, that leads you astray from purity of devotion to Christ. Well, you know it's not from above. You know, that's all it takes. You know if this is leading me away from devotion to Christ, this wisdom is not from above. It's from below. So beware. And instead seek God's wisdom, which is first pure. Secondly, now the rest of the list will move a little quicker. Secondly, he says, wisdom from, from above is peaceable. Literally, the word means lover of peace. And so the lover of wisdom is going to be a lover of peace. It's not talking about peace, though, at the expense of purity. That should be obvious. But this is a peace that comes from someone who has yielded their life to God. And in many ways, this peaceable person will yield to others when it comes to preferences or things that don't matter. This is the opposite of the selfish, self-centered person, where God's wisdom says, if possible, so long as it 
depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18. You know, the wise person does not look to pick a fight. He or she is not hot-tempered or quarrelsome. And that, that's the fool in Proverbs, the one who's not peaceable. They're a contentious person. And that's just going to lead to a life of trouble. But wisdom from above says live at peace with others and be a peacemaker. Third, wisdom from above is gentle. This word means fair, considerate. And the wise person is going to deal fairly with others. It's not going to take advantage of others for selfish gain. The gentle person is going to well, deal gently, kindly, considerately with others and, and help them. You can picture like a liquor store owner in Alabama and a hurricane is approaching. So he decides to double the price of water and gas and batteries. This is known as price gouging. And it's all about you know, taking advantage of people in need for the sake of personal gain. And look, that, that whole mindset, what would lead someone to do that? Well, the wisdom of the world. Just, this is about you. This is an opportunity for you to get ahead. Okay, it might harm some people, but this is a great chance to, to get ahead, to serve self. That's wisdom from below, below. It's not gentle or reasonable or considerate. That's harsh. But instead, God says, Titus 3.2, malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Gentle and peaceable, they, they often go together and that they govern how we treat others. You know, when a self-centered person is attacked or when they're, they're mistreated, they often reason like, hey, myself has been attacked. I need to now defend Self, I need to fight for the honor of self. And therefore, I, I got to attack this other person. I mean, they're attacking my self. I need to take them down. And verbally, physically, I need to defend self. The wisdom of the world, you, you must defend self at all costs. But the Christian does not live for self. It's not pleasant to be mistreated. But the Christian must reason, you know, I, I trust God to defend me. I'm going to trust God to do what is right. This wicked person is oppressing me. I'm going to trust God to, to judge. But let me respond in a way that honors God. I don't need to defend self, at least not sinfully, but I need to trust God. Look, we don't fight fire with fire. Wisdom from above tells us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, it's gentle. It's peaceable. It makes for peace. It's the way of Christ. And fourth now, wisdom from above is reasonable, as it is in the NASB, reasonable. This word is similar to gentle. This carries the nuance of being approachable, easy to be entreated. You know, the, the selfish person doesn't care what you have to say, doesn't care what you want, doesn't care what's best for you. It's kind of looking out for number one. They have a my way or the highway mentality. But the wise person here, per God's wisdom, that they're not, they're not stubborn. That they're re- reasonable. That they're willing to talk, even defer, because, you know, life is not about them seeking all of their own personal interest. They're living instead for God. They're, they're serving him and his interests, and therefore the interests of others. This is the, the wisdom found in Philippians 2, 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfishness. I'll read that again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you, do you see the contrast already? In this list, this little character sketch of wisdom from above. But, I mean, already, do you see just the total stark contrast with the wisdom of the world, the thinking of the world? It's just so opposite, the world and its ways, which is all about, again, self, serving self, just look out for self, no matter the cost. But God says, look, trust him. He'll care for your actual needs, and you just serve him. And that's going to lead you to serve others at times even beyond yourself. 
But in this, he's pleased. This is God's way and God's wisdom. And speaking of caring for others, the fifth characteristic of divine wisdom is, he says, being full of mercy and good fruits. And for this one, just picture the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? That, that's the picture here. The wisdom of the world is completely pictured in that story by the Levite and the priest. They see that man beaten nearly to death by the side of the road, and they pass on by. Why do they pass by? Well, one, he's a foreigner. Two, you know, it's going to cost them to help the guy. And three, they're not going to get anything out of it. So why should they stop? They pass on by. They don't help the person in need. And that's the wisdom of the world. It's like the person who gives to charity, but solely for the tax benefits. It's like there's got to be something in it for them if they're going to show mercy. But the wise one before God is like that Samaritan, sees the person in need, shows them mercy, shows them help, even at personal cost, even when there's nothing to gain. Isn't that how God treated us and showed us mercy? And we've received mercy and good fruits from God, and we need to reflect his mercy and goodness toward others. That's his wisdom for our life. Sixth, wisdom from above is unwavering, he says, meaning without variance, unhesitating, not double-minded. We see that a lot in James, right? Remember, he talked earlier about the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the person who's got a foot in the world and a foot in the church, trying to, trying to do both, but it's going to lead to such an unstable life. They're often going to fall into the world and the ways of the world. His interests are divided but God's wisdom advocates a complete devotion to the Lord. Like Paul was saying, just the simplicity and purity of devotion to the Lord. It's single-minded. I mean, you're, you're all in. I'm, I'm, I'm his now. I follow him. And there's no riding the fence anymore. And that, that wisdom where you're single-minded in your devotion to him will lead to that life of peace and blessing that this wisdom produces. And finally, this wisdom from above is without hypocrisy, James says, without hypocrisy, meaning it's sincere, it's not fake, it's not feigned, and it produces a person who really trusts in the Lord. And to use use James's terminology, this would be the hearer and the doer of the word. That's what we're talking about here. This wisdom from above leads to hearers and doers. And Christ himself told us who the wise man is here. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after all of his teaching, he finishes by by telling us who's the wise man. And he says the wise man is the one who hears his words and then acts on them. He's like the one who built his house on the rock, weather any storm. He's the one who hears the word and then does it. That's the wise man according to Christ. The fool, the one who builds his house on the sand, that's the one who hears the same word, that they heard all the same thing, then doesn't do anything, does not act on them. He's the hypocrite, and he will suffer ruin for his insincerity. Again, remember the standard of wisdom from verse 13 from Christ. It's not how much you know. It's not even what you hear. You could sit in church your whole life and hear a thousand sermons. It's not going to make you wise. You've got to hear and then do. And actually live all that stuff out from the heart. That's the measure and the standard of the wise person. And the fool boasts, but then does nothing. But the wise one is, is the person who follows Christ in word and deed. And I pray you'll be found sincere like this. So this is a little character sketch of the wisdom from above. And again, just see the total 180 black and white contrast with the wisdom from below. You, you have to have noticed by now, just at a foundational level, over and over, the wisdom from below is characterized primarily by what? Self. Just always comes back to self. And I'm sure from your past and just your observation of the world, you can testify to that. The world is just all about self. 
That's what it comes back to. Man in his rebellion likes to think he's his own God. And, but God's wisdom derives from a right recognition of God as God, Christ as supreme. And therefore, it leads us to be all about serving this God and thereby serving others, even above and beyond self. It's the way of Christ, the, right, the way of wisdom that Christ showed us and lived before us. And if you follow him, well, his wisdom is going to take you that way as we deny self and pick up our cross and follow him. This is the way of the wisdom of, of God. And naturally, it leads to, number two, its source. These three qualities of wisdom from above, same outline, its character. Secondly, now its source. Pretty straightforward here in verse 17, James says it's from above. It's not verse 15, it's not from below. We're talking about wisdom from above, obviously. And it doesn't mean the clouds or the atmosphere. He's talking about God. And the source of this wisdom is God himself. I mean, just think, God. I think he knows a thing or two. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth. He, he knows all things, including us. He made us. He knows who we are, how we operate, how our heart functions, how we sin, why we sin. He knows how we grow, how we change. He knows the meaning of life. He knows the purpose of life. He knows eternity. He knows what the broad path of destruction looks like and how to get there. He also knows how, what the narrow path of life looks like and how to find it. So, I mean, thinking about all that God knows and his wisdom. Shouldn't you like go to him for answers? Right? I mean, shouldn't you listen to the source and let God define truth and error, right and wrong, wisdom and folly. I mean, either God is God or he's not. And if he's not live as you please, nothing matters anyway. But if he is, and you know, he is, then don't you think it's about time to Listen to him, heed his word, and like, and then do it too. Just take him at his word. Again, why, why would you, knowing all this, why would you go to the world? And to those specifically who deny this God and scorn him, why would you go to them for answers, for counsel, for life, for help, for how to change, and more? I mean, why, why wouldn't you just go to God, go to the source of divine wisdom. Didn't James tell us this back in chapter 1, verse 5? You can flip back. James 1, 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, it will be given to him. He doesn't say, like, go to the world. He doesn't say, read a horoscope. He doesn't say, see a shrink. Just ask of God. You want wisdom? Ask God. God, the source, go to the source. And that includes Christ, who is wisdom from above, come down. Wisdom personified, God's wisdom in flesh. That's who Christ is to us. He made known, uh, he's the one who made known to us God's ways and wisdom more than all. And so it's no wonder that Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 3, or 2 verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ's word, his witness, his person, his work, there we find all the hidden treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. But the thing is, this wisdom, it's, it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, it's just right there. It's there for all to see, but not all want it. Some people are still blinded by sin and by self, like we once were. And so they see Christ. Maybe they encounter him. He's the pearl of great price, but they don't want it. It's like pearls before swine. They cast it aside and they would rather turn toward, toward garbage. But I, again, I pray that you would have eyes to see the wisdom of God in Christ, in his person, in his work. In fact, I want to share with you another passage, just sent from 1 Corinthians if you want to follow along real quick, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 1. But it just, it's just showing us the wisdom of God in Christ. 
In this passage, the Apostle Paul is likewise contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. He says this in verse 18, and I'll read as you turn. Just one verse here. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, the world thinks God is dumb. Right? I mean, God is dumb. His word is dumb. His plan is just dumb. They deny that a righteous God will ever judge this world. And you know, this whole thought of a savior who died on the cross for us, it's just laughable. It's foolish. But to us who are being saved, it doesn't sound so dumb anymore. It sounds compelling. It's not foolishness. We find instead the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's keep reading. If you're with me, turn look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 1, or you can listen. He says after, <clears throat> for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, assembling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The world and its wisdom has rejected God. They've rejected God as creator. God didn't make this world. We know that now with science, right? This, this world came about time and chance. That's all it took, time and chance. This world has rejected God as judge. There's no all-powerful being who's going to like judge you for the bad things you've done. You know, those bad things you've done that violated your conscience, made you feel guilty. Just don't worry about that. That's just like a, an evolutionary hangover or something like that. Like there's no judgment coming. And they've rejected God as savior. Salvation from what? You don't need salvation. When you die, you just fade to black. Don't worry about it. That's all there is. And you know, all this talk of God coming to earth as a man and dying on the cross. Foolishness. Old, old fairy tale. That's what I used to think. That's what you used to think. In the Bible, it's just an old storybook. It doesn't make sense at that. This is the, what the wisdom of the world says. But you know, it's amazing that God in his mercy, still decided to call some people and decide to open their eyes and just reveal to them the truth, his wisdom. And that wisdom is seen most profoundly in the cross of Christ. When God opens your eyes, what do you see? Well, you see yourself rightly for the first time ever that you were made in the image of God and you were made to be like him, righteous like him. But then you see your sin, you realize you are not righteous like him. You are unclean, you are defiled, you are unrighteous. You also see God rightly for the first time that, wow, he really is creator and holy and just. And he will judge those who violate his will. That includes you. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then you also see Christ and the cross. God in flesh came to earth, lived a servant life, and then died on the cross. Why on earth would he do that? Well, when your eyes are open, you realize he did that for you. To be your substitute sacrifice, to pay the the full debt of your guilt in your place. He did that for you. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death itself to give you new and eternal life into the world. This doesn't make any sense. It's just foolishness. But what can we say to those who are the called? Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. He says in verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. 
And so we see now Christ himself, his work, his words, it's the whole gospel. That is the ultimate wisdom of God. And apart from it, there's no real wisdom. And so you know what this means? That if you're outside Christ, if you have no faith in Christ, if you reject God, what do you really know? I mean, you could be a PhD, but you're apart from Christ. You reject God. You, you're without hope. You're living enmity. Does that sound like wisdom to you? Not biblically. Instead, you could be the maid who cleans the house of that PhD, and you could be wiser than them. How? Well, you have the source of wisdom. You have faith in Christ, eyes open to the truth. You know God and the gospel. And in Christ and the gospel, well, you have access to the full treasure trove of God's wisdom and all the truth for life than you need. Just like Psalm 119, 97 says and following, he says, oh, how I love your law. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. He says, I have more insight than all my teachers. I understand more than the aged. When you have God's wisdom, the source of it, you can be wise well beyond your years. And this means a child armed with faith in Christ and the gospel can be more wise than Albert Einstein. Not more intelligent, sure. Book smarts, no, probably not. But you can be more wise. And remember, it's not intelligence that's needed for a good life, a blessed life before God. It's wisdom. Wisdom is what is needed for a life of peace and blessing here and hereafter. And so make sure you go to the source of wisdom from above. Do you see God's wisdom in Christ and his gospel? Just go to him in faith. Your eyes will be opened. You will behold wisdom in him. And then finally, you're going to bear the fruit of that wisdom. We find lastly, it's fruit of wisdom from above. It's character, it's source. Third, it's fruit. It's from verse 18 now. And we find now peace. The fruit of wisdom from above, peace. Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's a bit of an awkward verse to translate, but the point comes across that people who know Christ and live out his wisdom, they bear the fruit of peace. They, they live peace. They live in peace with others. They're meek and humble per his wisdom. And so they're, they're peacemakers and they have peace with God as well. They have peace with God from a heart that is reconciled through Christ. Ephesians 2.14, Christ himself is our peace. And so we're told, Colossians 3.15, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Those who have the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts, they're going to live rightly before God and others. And like when you know that Christ is in you, you have peace with God. Your spiritual war is over through your faith in him. It produces a sense of spiritual well-being where no matter the circumstances you face, scripture affirms you're, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're reconciled, you're adopted, you're secured all in Christ. That is meant to give you peace where you can say, no matter what, it is well with my soul. This is the peace that God's wisdom gives, and it leads to peace with others and a life of righteousness. The one who lives by God's wisdom will experience peace with God, peace with others, and a life of righteousness. Just kind of put feet to this with an illustration. A little while ago, two women were visiting a 99-cent store in Porterville. They came to a typical parking lot. It wasn't you two. They came... <laughs> They came to a typical parking lot dispute where one lady was waiting for a parking spot where another lady swooped in and stole it. And so the one lady who felt the spot was hers responded in sinful anger and decided to violently ram her car into the back of the other lady's car. A little road rage ensued. She fled the scene. The other person had minor injuries. 
The assailant was later arrested and jailed for assault with a deadly weapon. I just think, like, what good is that? Like, what use is that? What did you gain? And can you just imagine, you are sitting in a jail cell for a couple years because you got angry that you lost a parking spot at the 99-cent store. <laughs> that is a sad, that's the sad fruit of, of the world's foolishness, foolishness uh, though, isn't it? I mean, does that sound like wisdom to you? But I have to tell you that the spirit behind that incident plays out big and small every day. And it comes from the wisdom of the world. The world's philosophy, again, it's about self. And in that moment, that's a true story. And that lady, she bought the lie that, well, my time, my comfort, that matters more than anything. This spot is mine. I'm entitled to it. This person is taking it from me. I've got to defend. I've got to lash out. That person now deserves punishment or judgment. But do you see how this is all just pride and self and foolishness? And does it lead to peace or conflict, strife, division, every evil thing, like James said? But instead, the Christian in that situation would respond, you know, that person is rude for taking my spot, but, you know, this, this life is not about me. I don't live just for self anymore. And so I don't need to defend myself here. God, God's still God. God's still on the throne. I, I trust him to provide and even help me in affliction. So you know what? I'm just going to find another spot and trust him to do what is right. And it sounds like a trite and, and trivial example. But listen, this is the type of wisdom that makes for peace when you're just committed to God and his ways. We're talking a spirit of humility, gentleness, and meekness. Just like Christ, paired with a real trust in God who's in control, this wisdom makes for peace. And don't we need that in the church? Again, that's why James is writing, because the ways of the world were getting in and it's dividing people. Imagine if that, that road rage mentality and spirit was in the church. People were like that in the church. It would be terrible. Our witness would be demolished. And we need this we need this wisdom and its fruit in our homes as well. What divides a, a Christian home even? It's when someone buys into the world's wisdom and thinks this life is all about them and their personal happiness at all costs. Just imagine a, a marriage where a husband and wife are both living just for themselves. That's it. Purely for self. They live for their own personal pleasure and happiness. Just like the world says, right? And so they therefore view their spouse as they're to serve them. Like their spouse exists to please them, to build up their happiness and so forth. And when that doesn't happen and when they no longer meet their selfish demands, well, conflict erupts. Lots of conflict in defense of self and my personal happiness. And you see how this is the root of jealousy, strife, division. But God's ways and wisdom is going to tell you, no, you, you put God first. You, you serve him. Deny yourself, follow Christ. And that wisdom is going to lead you instead to lay down your life for your spouse. And so can you imagine instead a marriage where husband and wife are both, they're almost competing to lay down their life for the other person. Just how can I serve more? Would that bear the fruit of peace and righteousness in a home? It would. This is God's wisdom. We need this wisdom in the church in the home, everywhere. We want the peace of Christ that leads to righteousness in our lives. And it comes when the wisdom of God controls our minds. It's wisdom from above. It comes from God. It's found in Christ. It's revealed in his word. And so if you want this now, if you want this fruit, the, the end of it, where you want a life of peace and righteousness and blessing, well, then it's time for you to seek out God's wisdom. Like we read this morning earlier, like Proverbs says over and over, that the Lord is one who gives wisdom. It's there for the taking. It's hiding in plain sight. But now you are called to seek it, to search for her as silver, to look for her as hidden treasures. God's wisdom is now given to you. It came in Christ and now it's written in the word. The treasure is there, but who will seek it out? His word, his ways, his wisdom. And then who will live it out? 
The one who seeks will find. And I hope that's you. Fill your mind then with scripture. Make this now your counsel, your your go-to for life, for wisdom, for for everything. This is where God's wisdom is disclosed. So take in his word daily. How about you let God's word define for you life, the meaning of life, how to live. And we need God's wisdom to daily orient ourselves to the truth. And as you seek for his wisdom, you will find it in the word. And as his wisdom then fills you, it will control you. And as it controls you, it's going to bear fruit. The fruit of a life of peace and righteousness. And you want that, right? You want that? Well, seek and you'll find. I'll finish just by reading Psalm 1. You know how it goes. He says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The person who does not buy into the counsel of the world. Instead, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It's the, the blessed one is the one who, who instead turns to the word, to God, for that, that counsel for life. And the result, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And whenever he does, he prospers. And I just pray that you would be found to be the wise man or the wise woman who is walking daily in the wisdom of God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we need this wisdom from above. And we need it now. We need it in our homes, our lives, our churches, and this country. The world's ways and wisdoms are all around us. And they lead us astray from you. This wisdom from below has only one goal, and that's to lead our minds astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But Christ is wisdom. He became to us wisdom from God, and, and in him we find life. We see in Christ the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Why are we alive? Why do we go on living? What is this life about? We find it in you, Lord, and in in the word. We're here created by you and to serve you, to glorify you, to worship you, to enjoy you. And a life of blessing results when we are rightly related to you. We just need your wisdom to govern us, our minds, our thoughts, and then our actions. So I pray you convict us this morning, Lord, to to be men and women of scripture. This is a treasure. We have it in our hands right now. We are holding treasure. May we not trade it for something else, but but go to it. And we will find there your mind, your wisdom for life. May we we do that always, Lord, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.